Bitcoin fixes the money, the Beef Initiative fixes the food and nutrition. Step into some new awareness that incorporates some much needed food intelligence into your life. This is Texas Slim with Texas Slim's vision. Hey, good morning, guys. Texas Slim here. I'm back in rural Texas, up in the Texas Panhandle today, and we have a very special recording today. Uh, we have Will Harris with White Oak Pastures. Uh, we have basically been working together, or at least in some discussions since I believe late last year, and uh, we've kind of gone back and forth, and we've designed a conference that we're going to have in Bluffton, Georgia at White Oak Pastures, September 16th and 17th. So I thought this was an opportune time to to get us together, uh, share a little education, a little feedback, and kind of project into what we're going to do in the conference, uh, kind of where we both have come and where we're going, and to get some clarity of the uh, of the food industry in current times. So, um, hello, Will. How are you doing today? Hey, Slim. Good. Uh, thank you for having me on today. Yeah, uh, I appreciate you taking the time. I know how busy you are and everything, and I know it's a balance to kind of get on these podcasts and to use social media in a way that people can see as productive and just not some type of entertainment value. And uh, I think it's always a, a, a responsibility of people in this space as far as regenerative farming and ranching to kind of really speak from a place of transparency and truth and not kind of hide behind, you know, vills of mass media that you get out there and the distractions that are going on so thanks for taking the time um why don't we go ahead and introduce we'll act like nobody's ever seen you or i and i'll let you introduce yourself and then we'll kind of go into some dialogue good so you're broadcasting from rural texas and i'm broadcasting what i suspect is equally rural <laughs> it is I'm, I'm in bluffton georgia and i am 50 miles from a walmart and you know, there aren't many places east of the Mississippi you can be 50 miles from a wall. <laughs> but pr proudly, uh, I'm 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 with them right now. This is this middle of our farm, Bluffton, Georgia. is in the middle of our farm. Our farm is white oak pastures. It's uh, uh, my my grandchildren had a grandchild born uh, last week, Slim. It was my sixth one. And Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, that is the uh, fifth. Sixth, that's the sixth generation of my farm, of my family, to be on this farm, to own this farm. Uh, great grandfather came here in 1866, and uh, uh, we're still, we're still here. Uh, today, we uh, pasture raise five different red meat species: cows, hogs, sheep, goats, rabbits, and we hand butcher them in a USDA inspected slaughter facility that I built here on the farm. We pasture raise five poultry species, chickens, turkeys, geese, guineas, and ducks. And we hand butcher them in a separate USDA inspected facility that I built here on the farm. We, uh, we raise pastured eggs, organic vegetables, honey, and a number of other little ancillary sorts of, of the bounty of nature that we use to monetize the farm. Yeah, and, and that's a, uh, you know, that, that, 
basically, I think the one thing that people need to understand is that, you know, you, you came from, you know, your grand, great grandparents, your ancestors, 1866, like you said. What a, what a uh, magical and in, interesting time to establish a farm in the South in the, in the United States of America. And so your family heritage from 1866 to 2022 has gone through the full spectrum of agriculture, basically, that we can reflect on in the United States. And so you have tons of history that you can reflect on. You use the word, um, and where I grew up uh, is very prevalent, and in what you were and what you were trained to be was a commodity cowboy. And I've heard you say that many times, and I think it would be kind of good to give a kind of groundwork. What do we mean when we say commodity cowboy? And what do we actually mean whenever we say, you know, land tools and regenerative? And, you know, to give a kind of a broad spectrum of where your ancestors came from, what you were born into, and then what you are right now. And then we can kind of get into basically the discussion of food supply right now and what we're changing and what we see as problems. Good. You know, what I think I enjoy most about the farm is how in the 150-something years and six generations has come full cycle. You know, the uh, most of what we know about the way my great-granddad and granddad ran the farm is just anecdotal. They didn't keep good log books, but we do know that uh, they would have had a multi-species operation like we do, a vertically integrated operation like we do. And, and there would have been a lot of emphasis in, in their program on the quality of the land, the welfare of the animals, and the local rural community, because it's what they had. Uh, my father took over, my father was born in 1920. He took over the farm post-World War II, and he really revolutionized things. That, that's what was going on post-World War II in 1945 and beyond. And you know the changes he made were could be broadly classified as centralization, industrialization, and commoditization. Under, under my dad's watch, he moved this farm from multi-species vertical integration to being a uh, what we now refer to as a, a factory farm model cattle operation. We were a link in the beef chain that raised the calves and we actually had a feedlot here on the farm for many years. Uh, I came up uh, and my father was, was, was prosperous for his time. Yeah, mm -hmm. he, he did well. Uh, I came up under his tutelage. Uh, all I ever wanted to do was run this farm as the industrial cattle operation that he had established. I went to the University of Georgia, graduated in 1976 with a degree in animal science from the College of Agriculture. I came back here and, and helped him run the farm until I ran it myself uh, very, very industrially. I talked down on the, the factory model harder than he did. Uh, and I ran it that way for 20 years. Uh, in the mid-90s, I started rethinking things for a lot of different reasons. It wasn't for natural. We were fairly comfortable. Not, not rich people, but we had no debt, and I paid taxes every single year. It was, we were comfortable. But I did not, I did, the things I didn't like, I started changing things, and fast forward 25 more years to where we are now, and uh, uh, really, 
if you know, financially, it, it has not been overwhelmingly rewarding. We were fine. We cash flow positive. We do have debt now. But from a uh, uh, fulfillment perspective, you know, I, my two of my three daughters and their spouses came back to help me run the farm. Yeah. They probably wouldn't have done that had I continued to operate in the that, that linear commodity beef model. Yeah, I think that's a good point kind of for me to respond to that. You know, what what did that bring to uh, basically the family awareness, uh, the basically yearning maybe for some legacy and heritage in a different way that wasn't based on that centralized linear kind of operation in which, you know, many, many families have been very successful in the United States ever since World War II, you know, because you're, you know, I've seen you, you several quotes that you've talked about is, you know, a guy shows up on your y'all's farm and your dad was sitting there and he has a bag of basically nitrogen fertilizer and he you know he pours it down on the ground and says hey i'll be back you know pretty soon and we're going to talk again and that had been you know never been done before you know we went from making bombs to fertilizer and all of a sudden you know we had won right we were were victorious and we were going to go out there and these were the these were i think in my perspective some dangerous things to say is that we're going to go feed the world because I believe in the long run that has been hijacked as far as the good intentions of that. But, you know, going back in the 50s, let's say after World War II, late 40s and 50s, you know, nitrogen and fertilizer became something that all of a sudden we could leverage. And that's what your father did because he did it with all the good intentions in the world. And he really wanted to be, he wanted to feed the community. He wanted to basically make a living for his family. He wanted to create that and keep that legacy going. You're right. The, the, the damage began when we imposed that linear factory model using all sorts of technologies into this very complex system that was a farm. Right. You know, the, uh, and then, uh, then the guy with the, the bag of ammonium nitrate fertilizer you referenced is, is a great example of that. You know, ammoniated fertilizer, I believe, was invented in Germany in the 1880s. But nobody, farmers didn't embrace it because it was very expensive and just wasn't, wasn't practical, economically practical. But post-World War II, all that uh, uh, munitions manufacturing that wasn't needed anymore could be repurposed to make ammonium fertilizer, ammonium nitrate fertilizer in that case, ammoniated fertilizer generally, cheap enough that farmers could buy it. So we, uh, uh, my, my dad put that out uh, the benefits were immediate. You know, three days later, the grass was way higher than the rest of it. But the unintended consequences was it oxidized the organic matter in the soil, wreaked havoc on the microbial life in the soil. Uh, it started desertification, but we didn't see it for 70 years. It just didn't. It just wasn't apparent. The unintended consequences were unnoticed consequences. Yeah, from that first point of pouring that bag of nitrate fertilizer on the grass and, you know, some of the the agriculture there, you know, throughout uh, the decades, you will say 70 years, you know, that chemical apparatus has just expanded in a more linear way to where, you know, we went from, you know, fertilizer and then we went into herbicides, pesticides, you know, there's, you know, thousands of different chemicals out there being used in the agricultural space. And at first, you know, we didn't really think about 
about it. We didn't have to. Like, we were trying to get to abundance. We were really, with good intentions, trying to feed people that we'd never been able to do in the history of man in a way that we hadn't. But I get asked this all the time as far as, you know, is is what is going on right now in monocropping and everything, you know, is it nefarious? Is the use of all these chemicals something that they're, they're basically using to control the farmer and the rancher in the United States and across the world? And I know there's many answers to that. But what I always like to just tell people is that we got to get back to the source of the seed of how we got here in the first place. And then we can actually bring out some people's intentions of the past and into the future because, you know, that type of education, I believe, is the most important thing that needs to be discussed, needs to be broadcasted out to the people out there that are trying to feed their families in a nice and tr- nutritional way. And whenever we do it, approach it that way, what we do is we uncover these discussions that a lot of people don't know how to involve themselves with and basically participate in and whenever i talked to you back in november you know i I said we're gonna have a conference and you asked me you know why do you want to do this why are you doing this slim and i said well flat out what we're doing is we're trying to save children's lives and if you can get people to focus on that being the intent and that starts with good nutrition food that comes from the soil itself then that discussion is broad and it's wide and you can be transparent for why you're doing what you're doing and you know I'll let you kind of lend into that as far as why you get up every day why your daughters came back to the farm and what you see now and what we're going to do in the future so you you started this out with is it nefarious Mm -hmm. and I can tell you from the producer perspective the farmer perspective it is not Uh it it is not these uh the, guy, the guys who are farming, I, I, in my area, I'm the only, quote, regenerative farmer here. This is a very traditional corn, cotton, peanut, uh, industrially farmed, monoculturally farmed uh, territory. Uh, and none of my farmers, none of my friends and neighbors and relatives that are farming that way believe that they are damaging their land. And, and you know, those, those things are not. They're farming the way their daddy did, their granddaddy did. We're third, third generations into it now. Right. Uh, they're farming the way that uh, the uh, university corporate extension county agents tell them to farm. They're farming the way the big ag tells them to farm, the big food tells them to farm. And, and they're heavily invested in it. They've got, you know, a, a cotton picker can cost a million dollars, and they won't do a damn thing but pick cotton. That's all you do. <laughs> so, uh, they're heavily invested in, in this kind of industrial agriculture, so they, they, they feel good about it. Uh, now, is it nefarious beyond that? Yeah, I think so. So I'm old enough, I can remember big tobacco and you know, cigarettes were, were advertised and, and the, the, any health implications was denied. And you know, the, the evidence later showed that uh, big tobacco knew that cigarettes were carcinogenic and, and causing all sorts of problems way before it was released to the public. That's the, re- that's the reason they had the huge tobacco settlements that they, those companies paid hu- literally hundreds of millions of dollars to states in, in mm-hmm. reparations. So, uh, you know, do I think that's probably the same thing going on with big A, big food? I bet so. That would be my bet. I would bet that 
30, 40 years from now, we'll be talking about big, big food, the same way we're talking about big tobacco. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah, in that pathway, I think it's, it's something you see a lot of things going on in, in the space. You see a lot of things going on in big ag on a global standpoint. You know, I, I saw one of your Instagram posts on your blog and, you know, people are worried about food supply shortages and they're worried about, you know, why would we, you know, not have an abundance of food in these days and times? And I believe it was last October. I told everybody, it's like, well, I think there'll be a food supply shortage in in the future and especially in the fall you know maybe winter 2023 because it's not going to be something that we don't have enough food it's going to be a supply chain issue and you know that's something that is done basically on purpose i believe during times of chaos like during covid you know that opened a lot of people's eyes and then moving forward what they see is whenever they can create a food supply shortage maybe it is a supply chain issue that's been Exposed, what they do is they can profit off of that because they control all the market access to all of our food. And I believe that people don't understand the lack of market access that they do have and how much it can be manipulated and how much it's manipulated every day. And you've seen this before you opened up your processing plant there on the on the farm and the ranch, and you now basically participate in a decentralized vertical integration where you control your processing. You become your own market access and so you know your customers maybe they they stressed a little during covid because it kind of got everybody off guard but moving forward i think that you know you and i and a lot of people in the space uh will do this do the public justice in explaining what market access is what it truly is where the bottleneck is and the type of nefarious bullshit that goes on with the lack of market access that we have going on in this country and i have no problem talking about that at all so so i think time has shown us that there's a lot of money in the shortage business whether you're talking about uh, baby formula or masks or toilet paper if you create you don't have to create a shortage you can create the perception of a shortage and it, it's just it can be really good for your bottom line because of increased margins uh you know, so let's let's talk a little bit about uh, resilience versus efficiency. Okay. So, uh, you know, the the uh, uh, we talk about complicated systems and complex systems, and a complicated system is like this computer link we've got right here. There's a lot of things going on to make it work, and if one component ceases to work. It doesn't work anymore. We, we lose connection. Your body and my farm are complex systems. There's a lot going on to make your body work or make this farm work. And if one component fails, the, the system morphs and, and it continues to operate after a fashion. So the, the, two, the tools that reductive science has given us works great on complicated systems like this like a factory or or this this computer link or your, your iphone whatever uh it doesn't work so well on complex system because in complex systems the the re reductive science doesn't allow for the unanticipated consequences that the unintended consequences that occur from 
from uh, implementing the, the technology. When you bring that technology in, that factory model, you create a very linear system that can be scaled up incredibly to gain efficiency that is just beyond belief. In a complex system that's very cyclical, not linear, cyclical, it's not real scalable. It's scalable to a point, but after a point, that, that, that doesn't work anymore. The good news is it's, it's highly uh, replicatable. You can, you can build another one and another one and another one. It's not a tsunami, it's bubbles. So in our food system, food production and delivery system, we have applied all that technology from, from redu reductionist science to make this incredible, incredibly large linear model that's scaled up beyond belief. And in, in doing that, we gained all that efficiency to make food obscenely cheap, but we lost the resiliency. It doesn't take much adversity to make it happen. Resiliency means that a system can go back to its previous operating form after some insult occurs to it. Right. So we swapped all of our resiliency for efficiency to get cheap food. And, you know, when something bad happens, you're going, you're going to have to pay the piper. And, and unfortunately, the food supply is controlled by a very small number of multinational corporations. So managing the supply to maximize profit is pretty easy as compared to uh, just a bunch of little white oak pasture bubbles out here. Yeah, and that's that's a good kind of a visual that people can kind of understand, and that's why I always kind of, I always try to you know inform people and let them understand where we came from. You know, I grew up in small town Texas. My grandfather came from even even smaller town Texas. He had about two sections in the Texas Panhandle, and his whole purpose nothing more from being a farmer and, and an animal producer. He was born in the eighteen nineties, and he basically his purpose in life was to feed his family first and then to help feed the community and that community started with everybody down the road and what they would do is you know they would swap a half a hog for a quarter of beef or whatever it is eggs fowl you know that's what they did and they knew that they could rely on it they knew exactly where it came from they knew the dirt or the soil that it came from and then after that you know they went out there and they fed the community and so all of the all of the food basically came from a 60 mile radius and now our food comes from a, you know, a global radius that is so complex, as you say, that, you know, in, in its intent is about efficiencies. Well, those efficiencies have, have kind of run their course where they're not really efficient anymore. But one thing that they are definitely uh, have succeeded in is making food cheap, cheap quality and cheap by the American dollar. And that is a dangerous place to go because when that is your intent, each time you make that efficiency model in that linear way, you're decreasing the value of that nutrition that we should be delivering to our bodies. And, and no matter what it says on the package anymore, it doesn't really matter. No matter how many touch points, you know, with efficiencies, you get those touch points. Like you said, you know, each touch point is something that basically decreases the food in nutritional value. 
And if you can keep it simple like that, you know, it, it's not complicated. And as a, the individual consumer, if they can say, hey, I'm going to take a pause, I'm going to take a step back here and kind of understand what our food system used to be, what is it now, and what are my viable options? And, and you've created viable options, of course. And, you know, you talk about Bluffton being very rural. You know, there's less than 150, 200 people that live in that area. Most of them basically work at wide oak pastures and i've seen the video footage i've been to that part of georgia and it is it is you know it is decayed it's decayed in ways and that's in the reason it was decayed is because we lost the nutritional value of our food based on this linear efficiency model that has has gotten to where it's metabolically bankrupting our 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 uh our our society in a way it's metabolically bankrupting our children and what you are is a perfect example of how we can reintroduce things of the past with efficiencies of today of a vertical integration into food and you know that's what i find fascinating is when people understand vertical integration instead of linear then they understand what we're talking about the uh the centralization you refer to, not feeding your local community, but mm-hmm. building huge, efficient food complexes. You know, if you will, if you will do any of the vegetable business in a big way, you do it in the Central Valley of California. And if you want to be in the uh, corn and soy business, you do it in the in the Great Plains. If you want to be in the cotton business, it's you know the Deep South, and 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 it's it's, it's a centralized approach and the centralization literally rendered rural america to be financially irrelevant yeah it it impoverished rural america because it wasn't needed anymore when i was part of the centralized system i had three or four minimum wage employees on this farm today we got 180 employees on this farm my payroll went from Fifty back then, fifty something thousand dollars a week. Uh, to today, it's a uh, hundred thousand. Excuse me, five thousand dollars a week. Today, it's it's a hundred thousand dollars a week, or five million dollars a year. And that money turns here in Bluffton, Georgia. You know, the uh, uh, USDA tells us that farmers get, I think it's fourteen point three cents of every payroll dollar for less than fifteen cents. I don't know here we get a hundred cents and that sounds like that's great and it's good but what's true is uh, all those externalized costs that went somewhere else are here so we're we're turning that five million dollars worth of payroll in Bluffton Georgia instead of Wall Street or Silicon Valley uh, uh, we were re re internalizing the cost that big food had externalized that's a good way to put it and and once again it brings back to the community and you're going to you know three to four people that you know were used in centralized way and for you know the type of uh, factory farming what i see now is people that 
actually create their own market access as far as producers and processors. They are reinventing kind of a labor market that we haven't seen in a long time in rural America. I've got a couple of people that are part of the beef initiative, uh, Justin Trammell and Cole Bolton, and they both are opening. One's opened up and they're about to open up the processing center in Texas, microprocessing centers, and they'll have between 15 and probably 25 to 30 employees, and every one of them are local. Every one of them are getting a new education as far as processing a different way, not the factory farming way, not the commodity cowboy processing way, but more something that, you know, we're reaching back from the past again, and we're, we're saying, hey, we're going to have butchers. We're going to be able to have a meat market. We have a meat market. Uh, these these uh, employees are actually making now more than they, what they pay in somebody like JBS or Cargill or Tyson or National. And, and what they're discovering is that the opportunities for the community is just not the food, but it's the education. Plus, it is that labor market that you're right. It's in rural America. It was just it was a dealt to be obsolete. And, and, and that's something that I've found, you know, looking deeper in with you, there's a lot of people that want to learn how to do this. And, you know, I don't know if a lot of people realize the type of education and the, the true educator that you are. And most of the people that come, producers that come into the Beef Initiative, they tell me first and foremost, they're an educator. They don't sell anything. All they have to do is educate why they do what they do, and that's when people become fascinating and they want to learn more and they want to make it a lifestyle. You have an internship program that you do out there at White Oak Pastures, correct? We have an internship program that I'm, I'm, I'm very proud of. We've had some, we take uh, six interns four times a year for three months, so mm -hmm. 24, 24 per year on the production side. And, uh, and they and they spend all, all of our species have a manager, so cattle manager, sheep manager, hog manager, garden manager, etc. They'll spend a week or two with each one of them, and it's, there's a a, uh, a curriculum that, that we adhere to, and this is it's, it's it's pretty good. I'm I'm very proud of it. We've got some great employees from it, and we've shipped some people out of here that they're, they're doing well on their own farms somewhere else. And we've just added a, a uh, this brand new. We just got our first, well, I guess two, our first two uh, processing interns. I don't want too many of them right now. We got get the, we got we got to work it out. But we take these people are on the production side. They're actually in the processing plant, in the red meat plant, in the poultry plant, uh, learning how to slaughter, process animals, make them monetizable. You know, right. people don't, consumers don't buy cows and hogs and sheep. They buy beef and pork and lamb. <laughs> if, you're not, if you're not set up to make that conversion, you can't monetize it and your program won't work. The newest thing is last year, we founded a nonprofit 501c3 called Center for Agricultural Resilience. And it is, uh, I'm, I'm very proud of it. Uh, it's not its not a how-to farm session. It's kind of a 30,000 foot session that teaches people how to think about the food production system differently. We talk about three legs on the stool being production, I in the pasture, the part we all love, the fun part. Right. About processing, which is making it into a monetizable 
product so you can keep you, you can live to fight another day. And then the actual monetization, which is, uh, you know, we, we, we raise these livestock in places like Georgia and the Panhandle of Texas and Missouri and Arkansas, but they consume on those those zip codes, those high disposable income zip codes, and you know, we got to get it there. So it's uh, it's it's something that we're we're very proud of. We've been doing it. We've been in this space longer than most. You know, we're 25 years at a minimum, and we've learned some stuff. And now we're really interested in sharing it. The the appetite to learn about things like this did not exist, certainly not 25 years ago when I started, but even even 10 years ago. But today, people, even people who don't intend to farm, people who just want to eat well, live well, are interested in uh, this this resilient system that works with the cycles of nature. And we're just delighted to have the opportunity to, to to share it with them. And that's, you know, that's kind of what our conference is, that you and I do next month is, is part of that. Yeah, it is. And that's a good way to kind of, you know, highlight the conference because what you what you talked about and I brought up in the very beginning is you're giving people market access to education they want. It's not that they have to be producers, but what they want to do is they what they want to engineer a new market access to a food that they can believe in and to a community that they can believe in that is like minded that they want to support. And, you know, I find that most people, they want to give back in so many different ways. And tell me about the nonprofit angle of that. What is it called and, you know, how we're going to talk about that at the conference. And then we'll go into some other things that we're going to talk about in the conference. So uh, we, we've been doing as much as we could towards education for a long time. And, and as I said, we've educated a lot of people. But it, it takes a lot of money to bring people to Bluffton, Georgia, and put them up here for three or four days and feed them. And it takes... We do the education with our staff people, like like my my cow guy and sheep lady and, and hog guy and shop guy and fencing team are the, the ones that that provide the, the input for the tutorial. So they're away from work, and uh, we we were just we reached a point that we were doing all we could afford to do, literally. But it, it still wasn't enough. We were still pissing people off that wanted to to. To be to, to participate, right? So we're the nonprofit, and it's uh, we've had people—I uh, won't say the names—but companies and, and and wealth individuals provide money for scholarships to, to bring people here and make make it affordable for the farm and for white pastures. It's a it's originally called a nonprofit. I mean, we don't we don't make money on it, but it allows us to share what we've learned over the last 25 years uh, without going broke. You know, I, I should say that, you know, I'm very proud of our business. You know, you know as I mentioned, 180 employees, we sell 25, 6, 25 or $26 million worth of stuff. But it is very, very marginally profitable. Right. You know, we just don't, we don't have much money. I have, yeah. I have friends who are CPAs and MBAs, and, and I'll, I'll tell them very candidly what the numbers are. And, and most most people who are educated in proper business just think it's absurd that we would invest that much 
personal wealth and take that kind of risk for such a shitty little return. <laughs> well, we call it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, we call that in like, you know, in the Bitcoin space that we, we are participating in and educating on as well is, you know, we call that very fiat mindset, you know, and that's basically base. you know, our food is pretty shitty for a lot of reasons these days. One of it is because our dollar is debased. And people are looking for these false profits and this false value that I believe, you know, it doesn't exist anymore. So whenever you say that you're not making a lot of money, your value is somewhere else. And you, you, know, your value, you place your value, your store of value in the land itself and the lifestyle itself, the legacy itself. Go ahead. You're about to say something. Well, to, 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 to comment on that is, I, you know, I, uh, for me, wealth is land and animals, another building that, that, that does something that, and another uh, you know, cash to me is I, 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 I the example I need I use is you know I, I need a certain amount of blood pumping through this 240 pound body to keep me alive. Maybe it's five pints or six or I don't know how much it's a certain amount. Right. And that's the cash. Beyond that, I don't want any extra blood. So if we get extra cash, we buy another herd of cattle, another flock of sheep, another piece of land, and. and and we, we stay cash broke you know, because of that. And I, I'm fine with it. I, I think I'm building wealth. For, you know, we don't take a quarterly view or an annual review. A quarterly report means nothing to me. An annual right. mail means nothing to me. It's generational. And you know, that's where I, I did want to comment on something. You talked about the quality of food a minute ago and you referenced it then. Yeah, I, I want to call this to people's attention. And I, I rail about the centralization, industrialization, and commoditization of, of agriculture. And we hadn't talked about the commoditization yet. But right. commodity, you know, there was a time when it was, we were part of a local food system that if I was a hog farmer, I wanted to have the reputation for producing the best hogs in the county. Because, not. Uh, not so much out of vanity, probably some vanity, but not so much out of vanity. But if I, if my reputation was I raised the best hogs in the county, the butcher would pay me a premium. Say this is Will Harris's hogs. Mm -hmm. If I raised if I was a tomato farm, I would raise the best tomatoes in the community for the same reason. They're worth more. Or eggs, or beef, or it doesn't matter. The the way to prosperity prior to commoditization is to, to produce the best food that people could get and then charge a premium for it. When we commoditized, or I guess USDA commoditized farm products, they set minimum standards. And, and, and then the, the role changed for the farmer. It was a race to the bottom. You wanted to produce the cheapest product you can produce as long as it met those very meager, immediate, minimum standards. So uh, you were not only not incentivized to raise the best tomatoes or hogs or corn or wheat for the miller, you were incentivized by being good at just meeting the bare minimums and not spending much on it. Because you would get the commodity price no matter how good it was. So, you know, industrialization where we really ruined the land and the, the, the water and the climate uh, and then imprisoned the animals. 
centralization where we impoverished rural America, and then commoditization where we turned the food from the best we could produce to the worst we could get by with. You know, those are the things that, that we stand against. And then we try to teach about the people about how to move away from that system. It is. I mean, the incentives incentives are out of whack. They're they're totally turned upside down. And something as as simple as is educating people on the commodity world. You know, the amount of fake commodities that they inject into our food supply right now is out of control. From seed oils. So, you know, different types of crappy proteins that they call are, you know, nutritious. It, it has gotten to the point where it is, it's a train wreck. And in, in you know, my favorite term is getting to the source of the seed of what freaking nutrition is. Well, it's a lack of commodities that are fake in your diet. How, how about the, it's hard to look at to where people cannot start understanding how commodities are subsidized, how the value is taken out of them, even if they do start with value, and how they can be manipulated for the lowest common denominator being the standard of that food delivery. And you talk about, you know, taking a little pride in your hog, taking a little pride in your pumpkins. You know, I grew up close to a place called Floyd Ada, Texas. You know, that's where we look at farmer's markets of days gone by. And, you know, you had the, the monthly in the fall, you had the farmer's market. Everybody came to that farmer's market because they wanted to show the love, the care, the intentionality that they put into that animal, or that they put into that pumpkin, or they put into that squash, whatever it is. There's something there that for 365 days that produced is doing the best he can with what he has so he could actually have something, an end result that had value to his community. That has been totally stolen from us. It has been stolen from our mindsets, and it's been stolen from our educational systems, our institutions. You know, I, I live in, uh, where I grew up was uh, Canyon, Texas. We have a, an agricultural university here. I can walk in that university and the regenerative mindset and the, uh, the regenerative uh, curriculum in there is frowned upon. And you look at like, okay, who is writing these educational curriculums? Well, it goes back into, you know, the people that started it in the first place and that it's got here. And that's where we have to really you know we we have to juggle that we have to it's a fine line because you know all i did was grow up around commodity cowboys you know they're my friends it's not talking like you said before it's not against the producers themselves because they're doing the best they can they work their asses off they do everything that they can to survive and to support their family and one thing that you know i see right now and i I was thinking about this yesterday and it's it's a tough subject to bring up but up here in amarillo texas they just announced a 600 million dollar producer owned processing plant for beef and people don't realize the texas panhandle produces a lot of dang beef and well that's great and they say they're going to have 1600 jobs that are basically going to be filled for from that processing plant well i want to ask them one thing what kind of marked access are you going to give the locals of the Amarillo and the Panhandle community for all that beef? I don't see it happening. I see that beef being sold across the seas or across, you know, the market access that has been designed by the, the conglomerates, the global conglomerates that you brought up. And, and that's where people get confused is they don't really understand market access. 
they don't understand these type of processing centers even if they are producer owned a collective let's say a collective of producers that's kind of a risky business these days and you've you're not kind of touched on it before the recording you want to kind of go into that a little bit sure i too worry about uh people building processing plants these days. I built one in 2007, I think. And we had some tough times, but we did survive. And, and I think we survived mostly due to the timing. And we, uh, I sold Whole Foods Market, the first pound of American grass-fed beef that they marketed as American grass-fed beef. A pure, sheer, dumb look, but it, it I did. And as a result, it, it caught traction, and we, we sold everything we could produce through Whole Foods for, for a long time. That, that relationship is cool. We still sell Whole Foods, but it's not nearly the relationship it was. We sell now a lot online, ship FedEx, UPS to direct to consumers. And the reason that relationship cooled uh, is not because the Whole Foods and other grocers are heartless people that don't want to see people like me make it. That's not the case. The fact is that industrial food production, big farming, big factory farming, and uh, big ag and big food all evolved together post-World War II. Prior to World War II, the, the, those, those didn't really exist as a thing. Post-World War II, those three entities co-evolved and, and they developed a codependency on each other. And now uh, the, 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 the guy that's doing the buying for Whole Foods Market, we'll just pick on them. He, he needs to pick up the phone and, and say, I need 48,000 pounds of six ounce fillets delivered to the following six warehouses next week. And nobody can do that except Tyson and JBS and those kinds of producers. A guy like, we're bigger than most in terms of family farm, privately owned. And I'll never see 48,000 pounds of six ounce fillets in one truck. They're just more wow. Right. Like you know. So, uh, uh, market access. So, yeah, this, this administration set aside a billion dollars, billion dollars for small and medium plants to processing plants, poultry and red meat. And and so many of my people I know in this business are raising animals in a regenerative manner and they, they say, wow, the, the, the hill they see is getting them processed. That's the hill that's right there in front of them. Yeah. And they produce them you got a process. Well, they're going to build a plant somewhere, Texas or, or Alabama or, or Arkansas. And, and they'll get up out of that hill and say, well, we got them processed. But there's another hill, and this market access. Where, where are we going to go with them? Who's going to pay me for them? Now this, at this point, you got more of them than you had to start with. When you raise that live cow, you could dump it in the commodity market. Now you've got, you've spent another $500 a head processing it, and you got to, to extract that value. And you know, that market access is very, very hard. Uh, we're, uh, uh, we've invested a lot of time and effort and energy and money in our 
online store and and, and <clears throat> for oil fulfillment warehouse. We do oil fulfillment here on the farm, and um, it's it's a it's a it's a very steep learning curve for us. Well, and, and if. And I, I think that's where we get into perspective as far as what market distribution, logistics, you know, everything that gets involved with, you know, you have shipping, you, you have warehouse space, you have so much to, you know, make sure that your, your, uh, your safety and the quality of your, your product is there. So it, it's something that is daunting. Well, the one thing that you do see, and you've been a pioneer of this, is one, that it can be done. Okay. But you don't look at it on a macro Hell is like we're going to go feed the world. No, what you do if your intent is to open up a processing center and to produce your own product and to have logistics in the supply chain lines and the market access that basically feeds a smaller regional size of population, then it is doable. And that's where people need to start really wrapping their heads around there. If this is going to be a lifestyle choice in which they they are going to be as far as consumers or producers, the success lies into basically, let's say something we can't even compare to you because you've expanded out through all these years, about 15 years you've been doing this. In today's days and times, if you want to start and you want to make this a lifestyle, either being the consumer or the producer, look at a 60-mile radius and say, what can I do in that 60-mile radius? Because if you take that approach and you lose the macro scale that we're, we're drilled into our heads every day through social media, through media itself, through the Internet, people get back thinking about where they're standing, their home, their community, and then they can say, okay, now I can do something that is viable. It's not overwhelming. I've got a group of people that maybe like within the beef initiative, what we're gonna do, cause we are selling beef now, and we're gonna be able to open it up to other process, uh, pro producers. A lot of those producers have either free market access through a processing center or the home processing center. What they really want to do is they just want to be found in their local areas. And they're not looking about somebody being in basically the Panhandle of Texas shipping beef to New York. They're thinking about somebody in the Panhandle of Texas feeding this mile radius. And if we can kind of help educate people on that, saying we don't need bigger processing centers. We need a number of smaller processing centers that basically can supply to a meat store, a butcher, just like you said earlier, you know, that, that butcher is going to pay, pay that premium for that quality beef. If we create that micro consumer demand that is based on community, there's a win situation there and it's not as daunting. So, so uh, now I'm not sure the 60 mile radius is the right number, that's situational, but I'll suppose. Right, it is situational. I'll, I'll support what you said in that currently we ship product, beef, pork, lamb, poultry, whatever, to 48 states, and I don't want to. Right. I don't, I don't want to. I, I spent $7.5 million, not $7.2 million building processing facilities, and I built the smallest one I thought I could build cost-effectively. And I was smart enough to build it in uh, Clay County, Georgia, which is... Forbes said that in 2021 we were the poorest county in America. So, Congratulations! Everybody got claim to fame. That's mine. Right. <laughs> you know, I have to. 
I've sold enough product, which is $25 million over the year, to cash flow that borrowed money that I used to build a processing plant. Now, I don't want to ship to 48 states. Right. You know, Atlanta is uh, three hours up that road, and Orlando is about four or five hours down that road. And it seemed like, sure, for goodness, I could sell enough stuff. I mean, I don't need that many. You know, people, uh, research says that people spend about $1,000 a year on meat and poultry. That's about what the average person spends. You know, to do $25 million a minute, I don't have to have that many customers. No. But uh, under current, with current acceptance of regenerative, humane, to raise protein, I have to reach way out to touch enough people to cash flow my business. Uh, hopefully, uh, as, as awareness, you, you mentioned earlier about we're in the teaching business, hopefully as awareness dawns on consumers, there'll be more and more of them buying closer and closer to home. You know, I, yeah. I want to put up my business in Texas to you and your people. I want y'all to have it. Right, but I got to right. replace it. With, I got to replace it with business in Georgia, Florida, and Alabama. Exactly. I'm, I'm, I'm right here where the three states come together. So uh, that's you know, that's just kind of the the evolution. That's, that's where we are with it. And and that that's a good that's a good point. When I use that 60 mile radius, I'll give I'll give some shout outs right now. I'll plug some guys that have come into the beef initiative, and. They're having a lot of success because they're kind of being found in their in their communities. Justin Trammell of Panhandle Meats, he wants 60-mile radius. Cole Bolton of KNC Cattle down south of Austin, he wants the state of Texas. Uh, Jason Rick of Rick Ranches, you know, he, he's in Colorado where we just had the previous conference. He wants that western of Colorado, and he'd be fine, and that's what he's achieved evening right now so every producer processor is going to have their different radius that they want to target and that's where we come from the past as far as the commodity cowboy and the factory farming you want to talk about competition well with what we're doing what you've pioneered what the beef initiative is trying to establish as far as our mission statement is that there is no competition here guys we got plenty of room we got plenty of people to feed but it starts in a smaller micro level of a community-based kind of approach and that market access and if we can do that then you know we're popping up like you know fly everywhere across the united states everybody winning everybody's getting educated and everybody basically is getting back to their roots as far as from nutrition to community to legacy and to heritage that's what makes me very proud about how much progress we've made even since you and i our first conversation and we talk about education again we've talked about the conference you know what i really want to do is is for people to understand that these conferences are they're a call to action in many ways they're a discovery they're a definition and then they're a call to action that you can leave this conference and this is what i found out first too and i want to, the georgia food uh, intelligence summit to basically be something that changes people's lives because they attended it. So you are kicking it off on Friday. So we're going to plug our conference. We're going to market it right now. <laughs> and so let's talk about the conference. Let's talk about your family. Let's talk about your grandchild. Let's, let's, let's bring some fun into this conversation. So people are going to 
backyard for a little bit more and they're going to go and buy their tickets. So what are you planning on kind of, we're going to have ranch to farm tours and you're going to be kicking off and we're going to be course doing some education, some small little workshops. So why don't you take it from here? What you want people to understand about this uh, summit and, and what you're going to be talking about. So we're, we're fiercely proud of what we've done here for the last 25 years. Uh, we've not, again, we've not built a fantastic economic machine that generates a lot of money, but we have done a, a lot of things we're proud of with reference to the land and the animals and the community. And, uh, and I am not much on presenting. I despise standing up in front of a bunch of people with a PowerPoint and trying to stay on track but what I do enjoy doing is taking people out to the pasture and, and tell them what we do and, and fielding questions and, and, and leading discussions. That's, that, that's my idea of, a, uh, of education. So we've got a, a one-ton truck that'll seat about 20 people on it in the back and, and uh, we'll uh, take different sessions uh, while they're doing things in, the, in our little event center, which is an old church. Uh, we'll, uh, uh, I'll be taking people out to the pasture and, and telling them, and talking about what they want to talk about. You know, they, right. It, it, it can go so many different ways. You know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, natural science out there. There's a lot of, of uh, animal welfare out there. There's a lot of history. There's a lot of culture. There's a lot of economics. There's a lot of different area places that can go, and and and, and 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 how it all comes together is is kind of what I hope we're able to demonstrate to people. Well, I think giving access, and, you know, for the next year, I'm going to be using the word access and market access a lot. What we're doing is we're giving market access to history and how things are going to be in the future. And what we're going to do is allow people to come out there and talk about touring around the, the farm there. And, you know, being on the, we're going to have four different words that you get to do that. And this, this summit, basically, that I've learned from our last two, they are, they're like a big old family gathering and they're like a family reunion and everybody you, you're not meeting strangers at these places and what we're doing is I find that the Q&A part of these conversations are the most valuable thing that people are taking away with and it, it lends back into what you just said is this ain't a PowerPoint type of thing that's why I don't want to call it a conference because conferences are kind of I don't know they're played out in my mind but what it what it is it, it's a family gathering a family reunion where we all come to a summit and we all have an open discussion and we get to ask those questions that we're not afraid to ask we get to answer those questions that we know that people want to hear or need to hear and what that does is it gives a sense of empowerment I think a lot of people these days don't have a sense of empowerment with money, with their health, or with their food, and I can't think of a better time, you know, in Bluffton, Georgia, September 16th and 18th, with the type of education, the Q&A sessions, the farm tours, the overnight visits, everything that people get to participate in, we're going to basically feed, you know, we're, we're going to sell 100 tickets, that's what we're wanting to sell, so we need 100 people to buy tickets, well, guess what, we're going to feed, I think, I think, you guys got four to five mills we'll be feeding everybody every mill that they attended this uh this summit 
So by saying that we're going to feed everybody, let's talk about what we're going to feed. What are we going to What are we going to have on the menu? As far as it doesn't have to go down to the dish itself, but just everything that you're thinking. Well, nine, they don't let me in the kitchen much. But right. <laughs> you can be assured that uh, there will be beef, pork, lamb, poultry, all grown here on the farm and processed here on the farm. In fact, there's almost never been anywhere but here. Right. Uh, the vegetables from our our garden, we got about a three-acre garden that, that we uh, raise food for, for us here, for our, our restaurant and our store. We do have, uh, I know we've got some cabins for lodging. Uh, we've got places for people to count. They're, they're limited. We only have so many of them. Sure. That's why we're at 100 people, yeah. We've got, got unlimited places for people to camp. And we actually have an RV park that we built recently. And it stays pretty full. So if, you, if you're going to try to lodge with us or, uh, or be an RV, you need to let us know. And uh, again, you know, campers are, are welcome. And, uh, you know, we eat, we eat well here. Yeah, we're going to eat really well. You know, we're going to bring in, we're going to invite some people that are in the local community. You know, there's going to be a lot of reflection of, you know, everything, the surrounding areas as well. And you talk about lodging. You know, the lodging is going to be, you know, one of your, I believe, horse pastures is what Jody told me. You know, it's, it's something that, you know, if you want to, you want to do some primitive camping, you got it. Uh, RV spots, they're asking you know people buy tickets we're letting them know there's a couple rv spots the cabins of uh you know they're basically spoken for the 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 lodging is there the lodging is close by i think 12 miles there's a couple of hotels it's not a wide variety but there's plenty of places for everybody to stay we even found uh, uh, one one person that's attending the conference found a bed and breakfast of a of a older family there that that's what they do they have a bed and breakfast so I think their bed and breakfast is going to be pretty full so you know we're creating market access that not too many people have in the country right now we're creating market access to your your legacy heritage farm and ranch that's been there from the 1860s we're creating market access to a new form of education. We're creating market access to like-minded people that are going to move forward. And not only are we going to be talking about food, we're going to be talking about the history of the heritage woman in, in modern times now. We're going to talk about homeschooling. That's something that's very important on people's minds these days. We're going to be talking about uh, uh, home birthing. We're going to be talking about the 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 different forms of medical options you have in the united states right now we're going to talk about nutrition from pure animal protein we're going to be talking about bitcoin and how ranchers and farmers and i know you and i haven't even talked about bitcoin but we will but we're going to educate people on bitcoin in the store value that it is and so that's our obligation and our responsibility to do that so we're looking at this summit it's going to be about sound money about sound health about sound communications for a sound future and so every one of those touch points is that we all get to come together for thank, thankful for your grace for letting us have it there at white oak pastures i cannot tell you how much i feel as far as being and um, the level of gratitude that I have for meeting you, Charles Mayfield of Mayfield Pastures, he's the one that basically introduced us, and you've known Charles for years, and just 
the amount of people that we're meeting because we're networking in this way is I believe it's a gift from God and I think we're just so lucky to be able to pull this off it's not about making money it's about exposure to some education and lifestyle I call it the new international lifestyle and it's a value for value exchange that I believe people are yearning for so before we even have the conference I want to say thank you Will and uh, you know I want to say I appreciate everything you've done in the past I appreciate you giving us market access to to your accomplishments to the things your pain points that you've had to go through people are going to they've already learned a lot you know just in this short hour but they're going to learn a hell of a lot more when they come to this summit the food intelligence summit so um on that note we're running about an hour i know you're a busy man did you have a your new grandchild is it a boy or a girl it's a girl she was number six and i've got another one coming in october will be number seven <laughs> are you going to get soft in your uh your, your, your and i'm not going to say old age in your experience age? Well, it, it, it is old i've always been soft uh, well, <laughs> well one thing i do know is you're, you're very uh, you, you, you live life with first principles based on first principles. You're extremely transparent and you do everybody a lot of good just by your, your, you know, your, your purpose in life and the form of communications that you use. I love your little note to Bill Gates. You think he'll show up at that Food Intelligence Summit? You invited him. It's an open invitation. You know, Mr. Gates hasn't responded. I, I guess he's, he's probably pretty busy. And, uh... <laughs> But, you know, I, you know, I didn't. Uh, so the way that happened is that this was an Instagram exchange, and I don't do Instagram, but my mm-hmm. daughter who does manage our Instagram will occasionally uh, ask me a question that comes up, or if there's a lot of focus on something, she'll ask me to comment on it, and I'll I'll write it down on a piece of paper, and she'll post it. And uh, the question had been asked apparently a lot. To, to her or through the media, social media, about uh, how we felt, I felt we felt about Bill Gates owning so much land. And, you know, I, I don't, I'm not, I didn't realize that, that hating Bill Gates was something that was vogue these days. I don't hate Bill Gates. I don't know Bill Gates. Right. But I, but, but I'm, I, and I, I'm unapologetic about anything I said. I stand behind every friggin' word of it. But my goal was not to eat up Bill Gates. Uh, I know enough about him to know that his answer for everything is more technology. Yeah. And I know better than most that misused technology is what got us in the mess we're in now. Misapplied technology. I'm not anti-technology, but no, I vehemently opposed to mis- misapplied technology. And we've talked about a little of that, you know, the uh, applying that factory model to this complex system that's that's the land in the in the ecosystem. So the idea of a man a person or entity, a woman uh, uh, who is focused on technology as a solution for everything, gaining more and more land when the answer is not, is not technology. The answer is understanding the cycles of nature and cooperating with them and, and operating, helping them to operate optimally 
to provide the bounty of nature that's what we live on. That's, uh, yeah, I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm going to preach here, but I'm going to say this. So uh, if we buy land every time we get the opportunity, if we can afford it. And last summer, I bought a, a little piece of land that joined us, and I paid uh, $1,850 an acre for it. And that's the market for non-irrigated farms in this in, in Bluffton, Georgia. And I was going to the closing at the lawyer's office, and CNN told me that gold was $2,040 an ounce. And it staggered me that an ounce of gold could be worth more than an acre of land. That is really bad, screwed up economics. You know, they're, they're both, they're, they are both non-depreciating assets. You know, there aren't many non-depreciating assets. Gold, or precious metals, precious gems, maybe art, just land. Yeah. But, but you, so, and gold is better than land in terms of it's transportable and a little more liquid. You can get your money a little quicker. But past that, land has got it all over an ounce of gold. And for there to be an ounce of gold worth more than an acre of land tells me that anybody knows what to do with an ounce of gold. I mean, you can put it in your drawer, you can wear it around your neck, you can put it in your deposit box. But an acre of land, there really aren't many of us that know what to do with an acre of land. And Bill Gates, damn sure ain't one of them. <laughs> He's the last damn person. And to tell you the truth, the last damn person that should be in technology, too, because his misapplied technology has is the reason we got here. I can say that because I come from, you know, I come from agriculture ranching as a child, but as an adult, I was in big tech. And I guarantee you, I can say a lot about the, the nefarious things that Bill Gates has done to get to where he is. And for his intentions moving forward, that's the last man in the world that needs to own just one acre of land, like you said. Because if you look at, if you look at gold right now, most people don't even don't own gold they own a gold note you know used to you owned a gold coin and then we have a dollar and it was backed by gold well that dollar's not backed by gold anymore and even the gold notes you don't even know if you can you can cash that in so as, as far as the value that we live that's something that is tangible in this world anymore well it's not monetary what it is it's that acre of land that actually is a universe of wealth within the soil itself and once you like you said there's very few people that understand the complexities of that and the true unlimited value of that land and that's something that i think a lot of people are starting to understand that we've abused and there's a lot of younger generational people looking at it saying hey i want to get that acre of land and need to learn how to engineer it with the type of technology that got us here and somebody like will harris is that person and so that's where we are. We're in that perfect storm of redefining what value is, what a true store of value is, and how to, you know, in the Bitcoin space, you know, that's that's digital gold. A lot of people like to say what it is. And so that's where the education needs to come from, you know, moving forward is technology that is a store of value, just like the land used to be and just like the cow used to be. And they're all converging into one one uh, place now, one environment, you know, one 
blessing and and here we go i think it's a perfect storm to really redefine what value is thank you for bringing that up because that is extremely important for people to really learn learn relearn or have a different perception and perspective towards so um eighteen hundred dollars an acre is that pretty good for that area georgia uh, that was uh yeah that's kind of the market 1850 then it's gone up some inflation is ubiquitous. yeah so it's, it's gone up some now but it's uh again this is a very 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 uh poor county and uh, uh it's a long way to a most most of the land bought like that is for recreational purposes and sure. all our farmers clamoring to own more and more non-irrigated farms so, uh, uh, and, and if you're a, a doctor or lawyer or Indian chief in, a, in an economy, in a place like Albany, Georgia, Dothan, Alabama, Tallahassee, Florida, or Columbus, Georgia, you know, we're 50 or 60 miles from any of those. So if you're a, a, a person with disposable income that wants to buy a recreational property, you can get it before you get to Bluffton. You know, we're, right. Well, I guess that bodes well for you for basically stewarding the land, stewarding the community like you do, uh, stewarding, uh, you know, opportunities for people that come in to experience white oak pastures, either through the internship program or one of your tours or now with the Food Intelligence Summit. Um, so saying that, is, uh, is there anything as we wrap up here, Will, that you would like to, you know, express or, uh, you know, tell the, tell the world we're going to try to get this spread out? I know that your team is uh, helping my team get the word out of the, uh, the Beef Initiative Food Intelligence Summit that's being hosted by White Oak Pastures. So uh, anything else you got before we close this thing out, Will? I look forward to shaking your hand in Bluffton, Georgia, and I invite all y'all to come. Let me show you what we do. I appreciate that, Will. I'm looking forward to I'll I'll get there a day early or so. And, uh, you know, I'll come in and bug you and we'll shake hands and uh, we're going to we're, we're gonna do our best to put on the best uh, weekend that a lot of people have probably haven't had in a long time. And so we're, we're working hard to get there. So uh, everybody um, say say thank you to Will Harris. Reach out to him at uh, White Oak Pastures. Look at the website. Uh, look him up on uh, the YouTube channel. Look up, uh, you know, on Twitter. It's at White Oak Pastures. We've had it streaming. There's plenty of information you can look at into you can contact you can learn more but the best place to be is in bluffton georgia on september 16th everybody out there remember that texas slim's vision is now podcasting 2.0 you can stack and stream sats you can boost you can uh you can give us a message we're going to start reading out more and more of guys participating in this new decentralized way of communicating where we're not censored we don't have to worry about what we're saying we don't have to you know be thrown off these platforms and uh, we're moving forward there. Um, Will, you have a great day. We're going to get back to work here, trying to get people to Bluffton, Georgia. Uh, so good to see you. We'll talk to you soon. Here at the Beef Initiative, we encourage all you ranchers out there to tell us who and where you are so we can let everybody know they're looking for you. This time I'm shouting out KNC Cattle out of Austin, Texas. KNCCattle.com. Cole, he's a fourth generational Texas rancher. He knows what he's doing.